1: So tonight, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Donald Trump's increasingly authoritarian rhetoric and his increasingly authoritarian plans for a second term. Congressman Adam Schiff is standing by for a conversation about all of it. And as the former president urges his supporters to watch voters in Detroit, Atlanta, and Philadelphia, civil rights attorney Sherilyn Eiffel is going to join me as well. Plus, comedian Jordan Klepper has a way of cutting through the noise when it comes to the right-wing echo chamber, and I'm very excited to chat with him later on in the show. But we do want to start tonight by talking about a world leader who has a history of projecting onto his opponents what he himself is actually doing. On February 27th of 2014, a group of Russian men wearing green uniforms and no identifying military insignia took over the capital of Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula and even raised a Russian flag above the building. In the days that followed, these little green men, as they were called, took over Ukrainian military bases and important facilities. But despite what was clearly a Russian-led campaign with Russian military to illegally annex a part of a neighboring country, the Kremlin denied all involvement. When President Putin was asked about the role of Russian soldiers, he completely flipped the argument around. And he flipped it around and claimed, quote, those were local self-defense units. When the reporter pushed him on the fact that the uniforms looked a whole lot like those worn by the Russian army, He even claimed that, quote, you can go to a store and buy that kind of uniform. Easy to find. His argument was basically that it wasn't the Russians who were attacking Ukraine, but instead it was the West who was attacking the Russian people. And this was all simply a matter of self-defense. Now, I was at the State Department at the time, standing at the podium every day. And while we aggressively called out the invasion, landing me, by the way, on the list of favorite Kremlin targets, we were often on our back heels Because the Russians had no shame. They took no shame in lying and blurring the lines to create such confusion that it was hard to tell what was fact and what was fiction. We've seen Putin continue to use this tactic over the course of the last nearly two years. Try to, I should say. Claiming Ukraine was on a path to using nuclear weapons, really shatting it from the rooftops, when in reality, it was Russia. Also a country, by the way, with one of the largest nuclear arsenals in the world. They were the ones threatening to use them. Last February, Putin gave a speech claiming it was the West who started the war in Ukraine. Not that military invasion, of course, we all saw happen with our own eyes. This pattern of accusing others of what you are in fact doing yourself is a classic Kremlin tactic. But if this pattern of projecting onto your opponents what you're actually doing sounds familiar, it's because one of Putin's biggest admirers is using the same tactics right here in the United States— Just this weekend, in a speech in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Donald Trump said this about President Biden.
2: Joe Biden is not the defender of American democracy. Joe Biden is the destroyer of American democracy. And it's it's him and his people that think they can do whatever they want, break any law, tell any lie, ruin any life, trash any norm and get away with anything they want.
1: Now, if you've ever heard Donald Trump speak, and I bet you have, you know he says a lot of things often off the cuff. But that was not one of those times, and that's important, because this was on purpose. This was part of a strategy. You can literally see that in the black and white, on signs that Trump's campaign passed out at the same event that say, Biden attacks democracy. And you can see it in a video posted to Truth Social later that night, captioned, Crooked Joe Biden and the Anti-Democratic Party. Not exactly subtle. This claim, of course, comes from the man who tried to overturn our last election. The man who accuses Democrats of vote rigging, when he is the one who has been criminally charged with defrauding American voters. Now, Trump's projection is an obvious attempt to muddy the water. Sound familiar? To blur the line between fact and fiction. To confuse voters about the actual threat. And to mess with their ability to recognize what is real. If everyone is corrupt, then no one is corrupt, right? That's the point. This is a tactic you might find on a playground, too. A child saying, yeah, I know you are, but what am I? We've all experienced that. Or you might also find it in Vladimir Putin's Russia. And projection has also been a major part of Trump's playbook for years. Who can forget this exchange from 2016 about who else but Putin? that's
3: because he'd rather have a puppet as president of no the United puppet, States.
1: No puppet. No It's pretty clear. You're the puppet. It's pretty clear you won't admit no, you're that the, the Russians No, you're the puppet. On top of that, when called a corrupt candidate himself, Trump labeled his opponent crooked Hillary. And unfortunately, it kind of worked then, and it might be working now. A recent NBC News poll showed 60% of voters have major or moderate concerns about Biden's possible awareness or involvement in the business dealings of his son, despite the fact that even Republican members of Congress admit there is no evidence to suggest the president did anything wrong. Compare that to 62% of voters who have those concerns about Trump facing his criminal and civil lawsuits. And remember, the guy faces a total of 91 charges across four cases— That's only a two percentage difference in perception, despite an enormous difference in reality. So what can you do? What should everybody be doing about these advocating playground bullies, whether in the Kremlin or Mar-a-Lago? Well, the United States did learn a few things since 2014 as well. When Russia invaded Ukraine with a more aggressive military campaign in 2022, the United States took a different tactic. I was at the White House as the press secretary at the time at a different podium. And the national security team made the decision, we weren't going to rely on condemning Putin's actions after they happened alone. Instead, we were going to verbally punch the bully proactively, verbally. We released previously classified intelligence that exposed Russia's plans to invade Ukraine. And it wasn't just about naming and shaming. It was actually about exposing their plans to make it more difficult for them to implement them. And it also equipped our allies and partners around the world with the information they needed to fight back. And that brings me back to how to combat Trump and his own use of the Kremlin playbook. The thing is, is we can't relax and assume most people will see through it and will recognize the absurdity of these arguments, because they won't necessarily, and they aren't. And his effort to project on his opponents what he's actually doing is to some degree working, at least better than it should be working, which is why it needs to be called out aggressively and specifically. Otherwise Trump may just be able to follow the Kremlin playbook right back into the White House. Joining me now is Congressman Adam Schiff. He was an impeachment manager during Donald Trump's first impeachment trial. He was a member of the House Select Committee on January 6th. And he knows a thing or two about dealing with propaganda and all sorts of bullies. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for joining me this evening. So I, I wanted to start just what I, with some of what I just went through, because clearly what Trump did this weekend, accusing Joe Biden of being anti-democratic, I see some parallels here with what the Kremlin has done in the past, their tactic of projecting what they are doing onto their opponent. Do you?
4: Absolutely. Uh, There's real method to Donald Trump's madness. uh, And it's not a playbook that he created. Uh, It's one that has been used, I think, by autocrats uh, the world over and for a long time. uh, And that is accuse your opponents of what you do. Uh, You know, Donald Trump's argument is really not that he's not corrupt or that he's not a liar. Rather, his argument is everyone is corrupt. Everyone are liars. Mm but I'm your crook. I'm your liar. Uh, You should be with me. Uh, And it's not just Donald Trump using this playbook. uh, It's also Republicans in Congress. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump gets impeached on a legitimate basis twice. So they're going to impeach Joe Biden illegitimately. And why? To dilute the stain, to accuse Joe Biden of the same kind of misconduct that Donald Trump committed, when there is uh, obviously no misconduct in the case of Joe Biden, uh, but rather an effort by uh, Republicans in Congress to muddy the waters, to dilute the stain of what Donald Trump went through. Uh, You see it in, you know, people like Elise Stefanik accusing Nancy Mm -hmm. Pelosi of being an authoritarian or an autocrat. It's absurd, but if they can persuade enough people that, oh, everybody does it, uh, then they hope to at least muddy the waters. Uh, They undoubtedly are aware Americans are deeply concerned with Donald Trump's anti-democratic plans, uh, his statements about terminating the Constitution, his intention to eviscerate the civil service, uh, and so much more, weaponize the Justice Department. And he is trying to muddy the waters.
1: You know, the muddying, it seems it's laughable, it's maddening, it's absurd, as you said. But sometimes it also works. That's why people keep doing it. I mean, what should everybody be doing to prevent this projection tactic from working?
4: Uh, You're right. It it seems uh, almost laughable to hear Donald Trump (laughs) accuse somebody of violating norms. Uh, I I think that may be the first time we heard that uh, word out of his mouth. Um, But in terms of what we can do, I think you're exactly right. We have to be proactive Uh, when we see, as we are now, Donald Trump saying that he would be winning in California and New York and these other states if only elections weren't rigged. Uh, We need to prepare voters for inevitable claims of rigging in the elections when they come. We saw mm-hmm. in the last presidential cycle that Donald Trump uh, said that uh, if he lost his early lead, it would have been because of fraud. We need to get out ahead and remind people, no, the absentee ballots uh, often look very different than the ballots cast on Election Day because Democrats use them more extensively than Republicans. So we need to remind people of the facts in advance. We need to expose what Donald Trump is saying and arguing uh, and, you know, demonstrate uh, the, the flagrancies of these falsehoods uh, and keep, you know, holding his feet to the fire.
1: One of your former colleagues, Liz Cheney, just wrote a book. It's coming out tomorrow. Rachel Maddow's interviewing her shortly. She had this to say. I want to listen to something she had to say and get your thoughts on the other end.
3: Do you believe if Donald Trump were elected next year that he would try to stay in office beyond a second term? I that He would never leave office. There's no question. There's do you think no he would question. try to stay in power forever? Absolutely.
1: So she's pretty confident he would just try to stay in power. We've seen that in other autocracies um, and we've seen it work in other autocracies. What do you think?
4: Well, I think she's absolutely right that Donald Trump will never leave office voluntarily. Uh, He just won't. Uh, And if anybody has any doubt about that, they should look at what he tried to do in the last presidential election he lost. But they should listen to what Donald Trump has to say today. He's making it clear again that when he loses, he will contest it. He will argue that it's rigged and fraudulent uh, and he will uh, terminate the Constitution if he is allowed to. He's also made it clear one of his plans is to use the military domestically. Mm-hmm. Uh, he tried to do that uh, when he was uh, president. Uh, and so, you know, we need to take his threats seriously because we've seen him act on them. Uh, and this is who he is. Uh, and I think part of what we're seeing also is his his team must have told him that he is frightening people with all of his anti-democratic talk and, and plans Uh, and he has never wanted to back down in any way. So his response is, I'm simply going to accuse them of what I'm doing.
1: All that projection. Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you so much for joining me this evening. When Donald Trump spoke to supporters in Iowa over the weekend, he renewed a call he last made in 2020. The Republican frontrunner urged followers to guard the polls on Election Day, specifically in Democratic majority-minority cities.
2: So the most important part of what's coming up is to guard the vote. And you should go into Detroit, and you should go into Philadelphia, and you should go into some of these places, Atlanta, and you should go into some of these places. And we got to watch those votes when they come in, when they're being, you know, uh, shoved around in wheelbarrows and dumped on the floor, and everyone's saying, what's going on? We're like a third world nation, a third world nation, and we can't let it happen.
1: The, there's a lot in those comments that should raise alarm bells. As civil rights attorney Sherilyn Eiffel put it, quote, it wasn't just 2020. The threat inciting his followers to target votes cast by black voters continues. Sherilyn Eiffel is the former president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. She's now a visiting professor at Harvard Law School, and she joins me now. Sherilyn, thank you so much for joining me this evening. And I just wanted to start there because Donald Trump, as you've said, is once again targeting black voters and Democratic run cities. There's no coincidence here. You pointed out that this is not getting nearly enough attention. I completely agree. So let's raise some alarms here. What is he trying to do?
5: Well, it's all of a piece, Jen, with the conversation you were just having with Representative Schiff. Uh, you know, Donald Trump has always used race as the stalking horse for his authoritarian ambitions. And I've, you know, made no secret of the fact that I think that this has been underplayed from the moment that he talked during the campaign about a federal district judge, Judge Curio, who he said was Mexican and therefore could not vote in his favor because We're trying to build a wall. And he was allowed to get away with that. At some point, the chief justice of the United States pushed back on the idea of Obama judges, as you may recall in a speech. He said Mm -hmm. there's no such thing as Obama judges and Trump judges. But when Trump said something about Judge Curio being Mexican, we didn't hear anything from the chief justice of the United States. You'll recall that Trump disparaged Uh, civil rights hero, John Lewis. He disparaged Mm -hmm. Elijah Cummings. He regularly talked about cities that had a predominantly Black population. And his election strategy, uh, which is why he was sued under the KKK Act by the Legal Defense Fund and later by Jack Smith, was to target precincts in Philadelphia, Atlanta, Detroit, uh, Milwaukee. There are reasons why he's uh, uh, targeting those particular precincts. And everything he does, if you think about it, uh, his attacks on Ruby Freeman and Shea Mm -hmm. Moss, the only way convince his followers that they were up to no good, that they were, what did he call them, hustlers, the way Rudy Giuliani could say they were passing flash drives around like it was uh, drugs, like it was heroin. This was all tapping into racial tropes that Trump has used. And the failure, I think, of too many in the political realm and certainly in the media is to play down the fact that he uses race as the way to bring his followers along on the project. And the failure to call out the racism from its earliest days, and still to this day, is part of what has allowed Trump to move forward unimpeded. Uh, And it is incredibly dangerous, but it is a feature of what he always talks about. He didn't just target the cities. He said, we are about to become a third world nation. Mm -hmm. All of the bells and whistles are there. And unfortunately, Trump did not create racism in America or white supremacy. But when he makes those comments, they tap into something that already exists in too much of the American public. And so uh, always look for it. Listen to the pronunciation Atlanta and Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. You know, he has ticks when he's trying to signal something about race. We have to get better at seeing what is happening, at understanding how this uh, authoritarian project is being deployed. And I think far too many people are uncomfortable with the idea of focusing on the racist aspect of it. But it is there staring us in the face.
1: Man, it's very clear. And you have been trumpeting this. And we want to and are trying to here as well. And <laughs> I want to ask you about the 14th Amendment because you've been very outspoken. Yeah. You're also launching a whole a, a whole, um, a whole um, amend, a center at Howard University. So you're very focused on this. And you wrote a, an op-ed after the Colorado decision uh, where the judge, the district court judge, basically said Trump was guilty of insurrection but didn't say said he shouldn't be kicked off the ballot, which is very confusing as a non-lawyer. And you said, which stuck with me in this op-ed, almost from its inception, all the amendment's radical provisions have inspired fear and timidity in jurists of every stripe. Why are they so afraid?
5: Because I think the ambitions of the 14th Amendment were great. The ambitions of the 14th Amendment were designed to make Black people first class citizens. And um, it, they also recognized that white supremacy was stubborn and would be with us for a while. That insurrection had to be met with strength. Uh, all of these things are right there in the letter of the 14th Amendment. And it has always been the case that the 14th Amendment has been underplayed, that even where judges find violations, they have refused to provide the remedy, uh, as in the Trump case. I mean, if you find that he participated mm-hmm. in an insurrection, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment tells you he cannot serve. He cannot be right. on the ballot uh, in either uh, for either state or federal office. But there's always a way. Uh, right from the Brown decision, as you may recall, that yes, mm-hmm. segregation violates the constitutional rights of of black students, but with all deliberate speed, we'll figure out how we're going to desegregate. Uh, there's always a way in which courts try to pull up sharp. And I think this is important because one of the things that Donald Trump is expert at is running roughshod over law. And he almost gets, it's almost his superpower. He gets pumped up every time he's successful in running over mm-hmm. law and he should not be allowed to run over the Fourteenth Amendment any more than he should be allowed to run over the other uh, state laws that are the subject of litigation and federal laws that are the subject of litigation that he is facing. And even in that context, when Trump is so um outrageous that he's willing to call the Attorney General of the United States peekaboo, you know, we yeah. have explained that this is um a racist slur. and yet he's allowed to say it. And it doesn't it's not like a front page issue every time he says it, it doesn't yeah. stop everyone in their tracks. And we just talk about the fact that he is describing the attorney general of the United States in blatantly racist terms. We just keep it moving because it's Trump. And that has to stop. It's offensive, we- uh, but it also is what allows him to build his power and it allows us to become uh, complicit in in his project.
1: Well, we got to call it out. That's what I'm hearing from you. And Sherilyn Eiffel, we've all learned about the 14th Amendment over the last year. You probably know more than most of us. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you do at the center at Howard University. I really appreciate you yes. joining us this Have evening. Have me back. Have me back. <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime. Thank Anytime you. you want to come on. Coming up, is Nikki Haley actually the moderate alternative to Donald Trump that some Republicans are making her out to be? I'm not so sure. And I'll explain why next.
3: Hey, it's Mel Robbins
0: Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
1: And later, comedian Jordan Klepper has spent more than most more time than most talking to Trump voters across the country. He joined me to talk about what he's been seeing and hearing out on the trail. We have to know this. We're just getting started tonight. We'll be right back after a quick break. So if you've been paying attention to the Republican primary race, you may have noticed that Nikki Haley is kind of having a moment. Donald Trump is definitely still leading by huge margins, enormous margins in the early states and nationally. But Haley is creeping. She's creeping up on Ron DeSantis. She's moving into second place in lots of polls. She's getting endorsements, too. The Koch-backed group Americans for Prosperity just endorsed her. And the CEO of JPMorgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, is now urging business leaders and even Democrats to back her. There is growing hope, among some, that she is a sane, moderate alternative to Trump. But is she actually? I mean, sure, she doesn't go on unhinged rants against the free press and the Justice Department. That's good. She doesn't go on tirades about locking up her political enemies, nor does she resort to racist tropes. She's far less crazy in how she behaves, no question. But the question is, how would she actually govern? And what does she actually believe? Well, the answer to that question is actually a lot closer to Trump and the MAGA universe than you might think. Yes, she tries to sound moderate on abortion and talks a lot about a vague national consensus, which is never going to happen. But she's also said she would have signed a six-week abortion ban as governor of South Carolina. She hasn't talked about shooting migrants like Ron DeSantis. That's good. But she said that she would send U.S. forces into Mexico to fight the drug trade. She's not perceived as the same sort of culture warrior as some of her opponents, but she's also said Florida don't the Florida Don't Say Gay bill doesn't go far enough, and she's called trans athletes in sports the women's issue of our time. I don't think so. When it comes to entitlements and Social Security in particular, Haley's is actually further to the right than any other candidate in the Republican primary field, including Donald Trump. She wants to raise the retirement age for young people in particular at a time when life expectancy in this country is dropping. And then there are some policy proposals that are slightly more obscure. They may sound that way, but they're no less concerning. They tell us a lot about how she governed, and that's important. And they sound a lot like the same anti-administrative state policies that Trump himself is proposing. Haley uh, proposed to impose a five-year term limit on all civil servants in in the federal government. Now, that may sound nerdy, bureaucratic, maybe a little bit. But what that means is that epidemiologists tracking the next pandemic and experts calculating inflation and unemployment would not get to stay on across administrations. And purging these people after just five years on the job risks gutting our government at a time where institutional knowledge makes the transition of power move smoothly. It makes it less stable. So yes, it is definitely a good thing, unquestionably, that she isn't launching into unhinged rants and echoing the language of dictators. But it's also important to dig into what she says she would actually do as president. You might find it isn't so moderate after all. Coming up, what does the slim path to the nomination look like for anyone not named Trump? The great Amy Walter of The Cook Political Report is standing by. We'll be right back. just two days away from the next Republican primary debate, and just over 40 days from the Iowa caucuses. That's not that long. So it actually needs to happen for one of Donald Trump's challengers, like, say, Nikki Haley, for example, to make this a real race. Amy Walter's been diving into this and many other things. She's the publisher and editor-in-chief for the Cook Political Report, and she joins me right here. Hello. So I I don't know if you're going to break hearts or what's going (laughs) to happen here, but Does Nikki Haley have a path to actually beat Trump in the primary, and what does that look like if she does? Well, there have been three different
6: theories of this case of how to beat Donald Trump embodied by the three types of candidates. So you have the, let's go right at Donald Trump and punch him in the face, mm-hmm. which is the, obviously, the Chris Christie scenario, or even even Mike Pence sort of calling him
1: out. Which people thought you have to do that in order right. to beat him. And then the two of them are- so that doesn't that's not working out, Yes. Right?
6: Then you go to the second theory of the case, which is Ron DeSantis, which yeah. is run to the right of him and say that he's not conservative enough on issues that core conservative primary voters care about, like critical race theory mm-hmm. or transgender sports or those sorts of things. That hasn't worked mm-hmm. very well. Now enter Nikki Haley, who's trying to thread this needle of the—some um, people call it the gold watch strategy. Oh, God. What great, does that mean? Well, gold watch. <laughs> gold watch is like trying to get somebody to retire that whole—you've oh. done a great job. You've oh, been a good president. Like this—it's not the time for him, as she it's said. It's time. as in her ad— she doesn't say the word Donald Trump, but her ad yes. says it's time to basically go to a new generation mm-hmm. and move past the chaos. Now, she could say, well, that's up. I'm applying that to Joe Biden, but clearly that also could apply to Donald Trump.
1: Mm-hmm.
6: Is that going to work, this idea of being able to keep with the voters that already like her, in Mm -hmm. part because she's not Donald Trump, and then win over the segment of the electorate that still likes Donald Trump. And right now, tell pollsters they're open to looking around. Now, being open to looking around and actually picking someone else other than Donald Trump, that's a
1: big, big difference. So if we just get down to the brass tacks of it, because it's 40 days to Iowa, a week later New Hampshire. There's all sorts of theories of what her path is here. Does she have to
6: win Iowa? No. I think she does well enough in Iowa. Let's say she comes in second mm-hmm. in Iowa. Beats DeSantis. DeSantis is in her wake. Or what if she's even, like, a point behind DeSantis? Yeah. That's still—she she's she goes with—but I be, being in second would be best for her. She then goes to New Hampshire, a great state for her. Mm-hmm. Chris Christie, again, this is all theoretical, mm-hmm. but that if Chris Christie drops out, endorses her, the governor of New Hampshire— Sununu endorses her, mm-hmm. that gives her all this momentum. She takes that momentum, has to sit with it for a mm-hmm. month and go to South Carolina, her home state. So okay? that's the theory so that's of the, the case. theory. And then somehow in that month between New Hampshire and South Carolina, build up a strong enough grassroots and, and infrastructure to be able to compete in Super Tuesday.
1: Which Donald Trump is has already, already prepared to do. Preparing, and has tons He's of
6: money on the ground, super PACs and, to
1: do. Yeah, yeah.
6: I mean, this has been. One Republican said to me, you know, at the very beginning uh, of this race, the theory was that you know, like in an uncomfortable relationship or a relationship that you feel like, is this really working? Maybe I should look around. Maybe mm-hmm. we should date other people. Voters. Republican voters were willing to look around to see if they wanted to date other people. But they're just not that into anybody that's left. It's not enough of them. Enough of them now are sold on Trump.
1: I don't know what the analogy is like. They're not leaping to the other date. They're still dating their boyfriend. I don't know. I don't know. we got to to work on (laughs) that. we got to think about that for your next column. Yeah. So you wrote recently a piece about the poll numbers and how difficult they are for Joe Biden. There's lots of questions about past precedent and people comparing them. Give us a Take here. How bad are they? Should people be worried? Should they be I mean, medium they are, worried? They are.
6: Listen, it's worrisome. You know this better than anyone to be a sitting president with an approval rating somewhere around 40 percent. We've never had a president reelected with an approval rating under 48 mm-hmm. percent. So that's not great. The thing about Donald Trump's poll numbers, though, if you look over the course of these last few weeks, look at the state polls. Obviously, those are the most important mm-hmm. because of the Electoral College even as Biden's numbers have dropped mm-hmm. from where he was in 2020, Trump's numbers haven't gone up from where he was in 2020. Mm-hmm. So this is really the issue. Trump has this sort of ceiling. We've seen it 2016 to 2020. Even as he gains voters, he doesn't really gain enough vote share. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is where you can see a lot of people that are leaving Biden, but they're not yet sold on Donald Trump. So this feels like The the challenge for Biden, of course, getting those people back who voted Mm -hmm. for him in 2020. The challenge for Trump is: is does he have any ability to win over people who didn't support him? Can he expand it? Yeah.
1: This is all stuff to watch. Amy Walter, thank thank you you so much for joining me. I think you left some hope for people out there who are rooting for Nikki Haley a little bit. We'll see. Lots to watch. A little path forward. (laughs) Uh, Coming up, a story that involves unrest in Ireland, Steve Bannon, Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump. I promise it's interesting. And later, I'll ask comedian Jordan Klepper about a crazy thing that happened on Fox News over the weekend, a correct editorial decision. Good for them. We're back after a quick break.
3: Hey, it's Mel Robbins.
0: Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
1: Okay. I want to tell you a story about Ireland. Yes, Ireland. That has become a fixation in right-wing circles here in the United States. About a week and a half ago, there was a horrific stabbing outside of a school in Dublin five people were injured, including three children. And in the wake of that appalling attack, a right-wing outlet publicized the identity of the suspect as an Algerian national. That helped spark a wave of racist anti-immigrant outrage online. Right-wing agitators took to social media, spreading baseless rumors about the attack and the motivations behind it, and urged violence in the streets. As one voice message said, seven o'clock, be in town, everyone bally up, tool up, Let's get this on the news. Let's show the effing media that we're not a pushover, that no more foreigners are allowed into this proxy country. Well, it worked, because by that evening, a crowd of some few hundred right-wing protesters were clashing with Irish police in the streets of Dublin, in some of the worst violence the city has seen in decades. Stores were looted, vehicles were destroyed— in the aftermath of the rioting, Irish police chief Drew Harris blamed the disorder on a lunatic hooligan faction driven by a far-right ideology. And the Irish prime minister said the country had endured two attacks, one on children and another on the country's rule of law. Now, since the attack, we have, of course, learned that the suspect is an Algerian national and also a naturalized Irish citizen who's lived in the country for 20 years. And while we are counting for nationalities... We also know that the delivery man who helps to do the suspect is an immigrant, of course, from Brazil. Folks from Ireland and beyond have actually raised over 300,000 euros to buy the man a pint as a way of saying thank you. And now, while Ireland grapples with this attack and the ensuing right-wing violence, far-right actors here in the United States have seized upon the Dublin riot in an attempt to bolster their own white nationalist worldview and enrage their supporters here at home. Neo-Nazi Hitler admirer and one-time Trump dinner guest, Nick Fuentes, said that Ireland is on the brink of civil war. Trump strategist Steve Bannon declared that Ireland is a powder keg. To be clear, it is definitely not. What Ireland is seeing right now appears to be a small but growing anti-immigration movement as the number of immigrants and asylum seekers into the country rises. But the American right, far right, is doing everything it can to embolden that movement and use it as evidence for its own fear-mongering and demagoguery.
7: The Irish government is trying to replace the population of Ireland with people from the Third World, obviously.
4: You talk about the Great Replacement Theory, and people people get very upset when you talk about it, but you just look at the math. This has happened across Europe.
1: Replacement Theory. We've heard them say that a lot. Bannon and Tucker Carlson are openly promoting there. That's what they're talking about. It's basically a racist, far-right doctrine that used to be the stuff of fringe neo-Nazi chat rooms and Klansmen, like David Duke before that. And it has been brought to the American conservative mainstream thanks to figures like them. And yes, thanks to Donald Trump. It's the conspiracy that governments or elites are importing migrants to replace natural-born citizens. It's been the reported motivation in multiple mass shootings in recent years, and yet it remains regular conservative dogma. The richest man in the world and the owner of the platform formerly known as Twitter, Elon Musk, openly endorsed it. Republican politicians have invoked it to talk about immigration and the southern border. And of course, there's Trump himself who ran his 2016 presidential campaign on building a southern border wall and implementing a Muslim ban, and who just a few months ago said this about immigrants coming into the United States.
2: Nobody has any idea where these people are coming from, and we know they come from prisons, we know they come from mental institutions, insane asylums, we know they're terrorists. Nobody has ever seen anything like we're witnessing right now. It is a very sad thing for our country, Uh, It's poisoning the blood of our country.
1: Fear. See, what happened in Ireland recently is just a microcosm of what is happening in Western right-wing movements around the world, using fear of the other to spark an anger-driven political movement. It's also a warning about the violence that it can provoke. And here in the United States, this is expanding well beyond the fringes. Just look at the Texas Republican Party. Over the weekend, the Texas Republican Party's executive committee rejected a proposed ban on associating with Nazi sympathizers. The resolution didn't name specific individuals or associations, anything like that. It was simply a statement of principle, a principle that a majority of that Republican executive committee voted down. There was a time, not that long ago, when associating with these neo-Nazis and white nationalist ideas was disqualifying for people to serve in public office— but in today's Republican Party, it's almost becoming standard, thanks in part to the root work of the right-wing ecosystem that continues to fan these flames. Coming up, one of my favorite observers of right-wing media and Donald Trump also happens to be a comedian. Jordan Klepper is standing by and he joins me next. So I try not to spend too much time analyzing what our friends on other networks are doing. It's healthy not to. But this weekend, Fox News did something kind of a little bit surprising for them. I'm just going to play this moment for you. Here it is.
2: He said, we've got a red button on my desk, he said. I said, I have a red button also, but mine's bigger, better, and it works. Mine works." (laughs) And then? Well, the former president finally got around to some
1: campaign promises amid lots of cheering, as you heard. Many untruths. The 2020 election was not rigged. It was not stolen. It was not rigged. It was not stolen. See, Fox News is capable of saying it. Good job. Good job. Not only did the network cut away from a Trump rally where he regurgitated the same lies and disinformation he's always spewing, they also fact-checked it in real time. And you may be thinking, okay, this is a good sign. It's not so simple because one 30 second fact check is not going to dismantle the eco chamber of disinformation that helped him cement his hold on the GOP and one that is still very active as we've been talking about in the show. And just listen to what some Iowa voters told NBC News this weekend.
6: When you start looking at the news and the, the news is painting him as a villain, they're using sound bites. I said, you know what, I'm a rally behind this guy. He has done more for our country than any other president in my lifetime.
1: Joining me now is someone who spent a whole lot of time speaking with Trump voters and is all too familiar with the cycle of disinformation, comedian Jordan Klepper. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Oh, Jordan, I just want to start with Fox. I mean, what Fox did this weekend was good. They fact-checked. They they cut him off. That's a good thing. But I want to ask you, I mean, even if they continue to do that, how much does it actually matter and how baked in is kind of this support for Trump in the MAGA world already?
7: Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it should be pointed out. I think when you pay out a billion dollars, you get a little bit more cautious about the things that go on your airwaves. <laughs> Turns out. Um, I think. It turns out. I mean, there is there's something to it. You can only watch an ignorant man spewing verbal feces for so long without getting bored. And so I think at some point this does start to feel like a rerun. And you're starting to see this everywhere. Trump fatigue does exist. Mm -hmm. I think what I start to experience when I talk to people is that they're not even paying attention to entire speeches anymore. If you actually watch a full Trump rally, it's chaotic, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. In many ways, the editor saves the point of view of Donald Trump and makes it more coherent than he is. So, although I admire Fox for attempting to stop all of this free advertising, you also have to be wary of the fact that this man makes a career out of being a victim, and them pulling something away actually creates more of a narrative for him than listening to him just babble on incoherently. Yeah,
1: and there's an entire massive eco-chamber that's outside of Fox that's still functioning. So, you've been doing—I mean, I watch a lot of these. I'm a big viewer of Jordan Klepper stuff and clips. And you spent so much time out there talking to Trump voters outside of rallies and other events. I mean, it's it, sometimes I'm watching these in disbelief, as I'm sure many people are. How do you kind of approach these conversations? I mean, do you know where they're going to go? You have no idea where they're going to go?
7: I mean, what you do is you watch right-wing media. You go deep, which I wouldn't recommend for most viewers, but we go in there to hear what the talking points are. Mm-hmm. We bring those talking points to people. We try to shed some rational thought and debate on it. And then we are consistently surprised. As are the people we talk to, I think what I find is when I when I go to a MAGA event and talk to somebody, they haven't had this conversation with somebody past the first question. Mm. We're all stuck in these little eco-chambers, and we aren't mm-hmm. challenged on our point of views. Neither is Donald Trump. And so they don't have an answer for the logical fallacies, and that's where you see them trying to fill in the spaces with BS, uh, which makes for comedy, terror, uh, but always surprise when we're out there.
1: Yeah, you you even look surprised on your face sometimes. I'm sure you are frequently. I mean, part of the game seems to be and we've been talking about this a little bit this evening. I mean, keeping people outraged, viewers outraged about everything. There's always something to be fearful of, something to be angry about. Um, and, of course, a great example of this we experience every year, and you just did this hilarious thing on, is the war on Christmas. And you and one of your Daily Show colleagues ventured over to the Fox headquarters. I want to play just a part of this segment.
7: Fox has talked a lot about how there is a war on Christmas. I think there is. If I were to say happy holidays, how would that make you feel? I might correct you. (laughs) Some people talk about saying happy holidays. Fox is really proud about saying Merry Christmas. They say there's a war on Christmas. There is.
0: There's a war on Christmas? I believe it. Look around you. Look at all the businesses. Look at the corporations that have. (laughs) you know, not allowed you to say that. I think that people are scared to speak up about their Christianity, about their faith.
6: Sure, there is a war on Christmas, and the group facing the most vitriol for sure are Christians.
7: I
1: think so.
7: Um, I do. Christians, specifically? Right. Yes. Right now? I think right now.
1: I... <laughs> Christians right now, I don't know that they're the biggest target of vitriol, but as anyone could see watching that, I mean, there's literally massive Christmas trees standing behind everybody and Christmas decorations behind everybody. How do you think they keep this ruse going as long as they have?
7: They broadcast it into the homes of many bored people who have no experience of the world outside of what the TV tells them. Like, even that couple, we had a longer conversation, and they're a lovely, articulate couple who felt there was a war on Christmas. But then we asked them, have you experienced this? Can you not say Merry Christmas anymore? They said, oh, no. Oh, no, it's it's totally fine where where we are, but there's definitely a war on Christmas. And I've done segments on the war on Christmas in years past, and that's always the case. The people who feel there's a war don't experience the war, but they're watching constant wartime footage on whatever device they have in front of them that is telling them it's fearful, they're taking it away, you are the victim. And so you get people who are closed-minded, they feel like their religion, their point of view, their beliefs are the number one culprit, number one thing that people are attacking in this country. Then they go to New York, uh, that liberal hellhole, and then they celebrate Christmas, uh, uh, oblivious to the reality around them.
1: The liberal hellhole with all the Christmas trees, liberal hellhole. So very quickly, before I let you go, do you think politicians could pull off the type of hypocrisy, calling out the hypocrisy and comedy like you do? Could you teach them?
7: Uh, yes, yes. I think they need to grow a pair and go at it head on. It's it's fun to hear all this talk about DeSantis and Haley, but DeSantis is debating uh, a person who's not even running for president, and Haley is running for a GOP nomination of 2012. I think people need to attack what's happening right now. Go at the B.S. And please, bring Jordan, a little sanity to this conversation.
1: <laughs> Jordan Klepper, thank you, offering your services. That does it for me tonight. You can catch the show every Sunday at 12 p.m. and Monday at 8 p.m. on MSNBC. And don't forget to follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For now, goodbye from Washington, and we'll see you next week.
0: Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One.